You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Well, good evening, guys. Now, humanity is wicked enough to turn or corrupt the most beautiful things on earth into evil. Now, humanity has taken something beautiful like sex and corrupted it into something disgusting like rape. Humanity has taken something beautiful like parenting and turned it into something disgusting like abuse. Humanity has taken something that should be beautiful, blessing people with our mouths, speaking encouragement to them, but we've instead corrupted that into cursing, gossip, backbiting. Humanity has taken something beautiful like charity and caring for people who are less fortunate and turned it into something disgusting like scams and schemes to take advantage of people who are less fortunate. Humanity has taken something beautiful like the growing of life inside of another human and turned it into something gross like murder through abortion and harvesting body parts. Humans have taken things like food and turned it into something like health problems and gluttony. Humans have taken humans made in God's own image and likeness and turned them into tools for their own personal benefit. Humanity has taken something beautiful like God and the concept that there's a creator who made us for purpose and turned that into something corrupt like religion. Maybe worst of all, humanity has taken God's incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection into a self-absorbed, narcissistic tool for money and women. Now, we hate it when people say things about us that are untrue. We hate it when people put words into our mouths. And I think we hate it even more when people say things about our loved ones that are untrue or when they put words into our loved ones' mouths that are untrue. I mean, if someone was going around talking about how greedy Adrian was, I would be very angry because she's not. That's untrue. And the problem is, lies are spread about God in the name of greed and sex by people who are supposed to be teaching the truth about God supposed to be saying what's true about him and right, and instead have corrupted it into something disgusting as a tool for personal benefit and self-justification. And that's the issue that Peter writes about in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, what we'll be looking at tonight. And he's very angry in this chapter, as he should be, when someone he loves, like Jesus Christ, his Savior and his Lord, And his friend is used as a tool for greed, for women, for power, for fame, and for personal gain. And he's very angry about it. And God is very angry about it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be very angry about that as well. Because it's still happening today. Now some people use their parents to justify their sin. Some people use their spouse 
to justify their sin. Some people use the world. And some people, like what we're going to read about tonight, use God himself to justify their sin. And use God as a tool to say, he just forgives and you have to forgive me too. They're using God to justify their sin. And so Peter writes about these people. We'll read about tonight. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2. About false teachers who are twisting God and truth about him for their own benefit and personal gain. What he's telling us, what we'll read about is that because there are false teachers, we need to be able to identify them. Because it's not just about false teaching. It's about the honor and dignity of God himself. Just like it is with us and our loved ones. If false things are being spread about people we care about, it makes us very angry. Before we look at this chapter, I'm going to do, I feel like I need to do a little preface before we jump into it. And I want to say, I generally hate how the false teacher sermons usually go and the false teacher message and website and all that. They, almost all of them go like this. They find some popular whipping boys in Christianity and say, those are the false teachers. Stay away from them. You know, the guys on TV, those are the false teachers. Don't listen to them. And they just, they, instead of helping people to see who the false teachers are, they just point to, again, it's these whipping boys, these people everyone says are false teachers, and just gets the heat off of them and points to these guys. Now, there weren't televangelists and megachurches in Peter's day. He's not writing about that. He's talking about people in your average local church, which is far more important than pointing the finger at people on TV. Because you're not sitting under them. You're not listening to them. They're they're on TV. It's about the people in the local church. Now, I searched, getting ready for this, uh, for a list of false teachers, typed it on the computer. I got 22 million results. And that was on Bing. If I would use a good search engine like Google, it'd probably be double that. So, burned to Bing. 22 million results for a list of false teachers. And they almost always look like this. They're... It's a list of all these famous people and it's always a terrible, outdated website with a lot of exclamation points and like bad graphics and a little counter at the bottom. Copyright 1997, last updated 1999. It's always like that for some reason. And I was scrolling through some of those just to to get an idea, you know, researching for this. And here's what started happening to me as I was looking through these lists of false teachers. I started to feel really good about myself. I mean, obviously I'm not big enough to make the list of false teachers But, you know, let's disregard the problems here at our own church and whatever I'm failing in in my personal life. I wasn't on the false teacher list. I started to feel really good. Look at all these guys with successful ministries. I'm not on the list. See, I started feeling really good about myself. Now, when we read this chapter, I want you to notice, Peter never says who the false teachers are or what the false teaching is. He tells them how to identify them, what characteristics you should look for, what their teaching generally sounds like. I'm not going to tell you who the false teachers are. You can Google the list. And there's 22 million results for you. I'm not going to tell you because I might be a false teacher. And we need to consider that. If I'm going to teach the false teacher sermon, I need to consider I might be a false teacher. You need to consider I might be a false teacher and examine me or whoever you're sitting under with these specifications. right? So if I just tell you, look at the guys on TV, get the heat off of me, that's a little self-serving, I think. Now, I pray all the time I'm not a false teacher, but I want the Bible to speak for itself and I want to give you the tools to make that discernment because no one calls themselves a false teacher. So I wouldn't take anyone else's word for it. 
I take God's word for it. Learn what they say and do what their motives are. That's what Peter does. Now, that being said, that's my preface. We need, to, we need to get rolling. It's a big chapter. There's a lot of stuff in it. I considered breaking it up into separate sermons, but I thought I would lose the intensity of the chapter, the emotion behind it that Peter had. So you're going to go quickly. You're going to need to buckle up because there's a lot of emotion here. There's a lot of ground that Peter covers, and we're going to go through it. So we're going to try to do all of chapter 2 tonight. Well, we will do it, and hopefully in a timely amount of time. So let's go Second Peter chapter 2. Let's read it first. So again, you can feel the emotion behind this, why Peter is very angry, and then we'll take a closer look at it. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous law, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her, own, to her wallowing in the mire. Like I said, a lot of stuff in there. So let's go back. The first part of this is an overview of these false teachers. 
And Peter gives us an overview. It's like a sketch that's going to get filled in throughout the chapter as he paints a fuller picture of what these false teachers are like. So look back at verse 1. The first part of this says who they are. The first word, but. I'm going to stop at but. And this connects it to the last, let me read the last couple of verses of chapter 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But, and that's a big but, the Bible has a few big buts, that's a big, big one. Because it just got done saying, Peter got done saying that there's no prophecy of private interpretation. It's holy men who God used to speak through them. They were carried along by the will of God. But... There's true prophets, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So referring to the Old Testament times, there was true prophets and there were also false prophets, just like today in the New Testament times, there are true teachers, but there will also be false teachers. And there's false prophets throughout the Old Testament, and there's a lot going on, so we're not going to get deep into everything. But generally, what the false prophets said was peace, peace, when there was no peace. And that's what God had to say about them, that these prophets were not speaking according to his name. They were saying peace when there was no peace. Because Israel or Judah was about to be exiled to Babylon because they were supposed to worship the true God, our God, Yahweh, the Lord. But instead, they had turned to false demon gods and were worshiping them. And these false prophets would come and say, God isn't going to do anything to us. Hey, we're God's people. He's not going to peace, peace when there was no peace. And that's what the false prophets would assure them of. And he says, just as there are false prophets, then there will be false teachers now. So that's who they are, false teachers. And this is just the overview. Then he says where they are, among you. There will be false teachers among you. Again, yeah, it's different with TV and radio and internet and podcasts but they're among you, among us. He's talking about people in the local church. Then he says what they do, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. So this is what they do. They secretly bring in these destructive heresies. It's not obvious. Again, no false teacher will call himself a false teacher, which is why Peter gives us the tools to identify them. They secretly bring in destructive heresies, which deny the Lord who bought them. So in some way, he doesn't give too many details, but in some way these false teachers will undermine the work that Jesus did on the cross. He bought us with his blood. He took us from the kingdom of darkness paid our redemption price with his blood to transfer us to the kingdom of his son, as it says in Colossians. And in some way, these false teachers deny that. And it's going to be secretly, it's going to be subtly. That's what they do. And then it says what will happen to them and bring on themselves swift destruction. That's the overview, who they are. It's false teachers, where they are is among you. What they do is secretly bring in destructive heresies that deny the Lord who bought them. What will happen to them is swift destruction. Now verse 2 continues on this overview. What effect does this false teaching have? And it even goes on today. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Hey, one of the effects of these false teachers is that many will follow them. As Jesus says, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Whatever they're teaching 
it's going to be easier to follow those teachings. Because wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many will follow this false teaching because it's easier, and that's their appeal. You know, we talk, sometimes we'll throw out the, the Pharisee card. And what we mean by that as Christians is, you know, you're kind of being too strict. You're being legalistic. But really what the Pharisees were doing, yeah, they had a lot of rules, but they were bringing down God's law to be attainable by humans. And they'll break God's holy law into little steps you could do in order to keep God's law. They're bringing it down to a level that we could do. It's an easier way to follow. And so their appeal is that it's easier to follow. And what's going to happen then, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And this is, I think, in large part what's happening today. The way of truth is blasphemed because many people are following after these destructive ways. Because biblical Christianity today, you know, as Christians trying to live the way that Jesus told us, trying to live our lives in alignment with Jesus' teaching. That scene today is extremist and intolerant. And there's a survey done by, this, by the Barna Group where they, they surveyed what makes someone an extremist. And one of the things on the list was they will try to convert you to their religion, which as Jesus says, go and make disciples. That's a core belief of Christianity is to evangelize. So living your life even by evangelizing is by most people seem to be extremist because in this day and age where all paths lead to God, what people say, religious pluralism, it's all the same God, just different ways of approaching him. To say, no, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. There's no way to the Father but him. You need to repent and turn to Jesus. That scene is extremist. See, the way of truth has been blasphemed. That's the true way. That's how Jesus has said we should do it. But because so many have followed after these destructive ways, the truth is blasphemed. It's spoken evil of. Now, the ultimate effect of this, at least in America, is that biblical Christianity is the weird one. Again, trying to live our lives like Jesus asks us, that's seen as the weird one, rather than this sort of watered-down, God-just-loves-us-for-who-we-are type of approach to it. In another survey, there's a study from the Barna Group, and this is almost 10 years old, so the numbers have gone up, is it's estimated that two-thirds of American adults are nominal Christians. And that means they call themselves Christians, but in no way live that out. So yeah, I'm a Christian because my family was, or because I go to church once in a while, or I believe in God, but not enough that I'll change my life to live in alignment with a belief in God. That's two-thirds of American adults, and that was 10 years ago. And I'm going to say that that's a direct result of this false teaching, these destructive ways that deny the Lord who bought them. And it comes down to this idea of cheap grace. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in like World War II era Germany, he kind of popularized this idea of cheap grace. And here's what he said about it. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Now let me unpack that a little bit to show the effect of this false teaching, this idea of cheap grace. 
It's preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Uh, Yes, God will forgive you if you let Jesus into your heart. He will forgive you. No, I cannot preach that you will be forgiven unless you repent. That's what the Bible says. But part of these destructive ways is to deny the Lord who bought them and say, all you need to do is ask forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. No, you can't just say, like for example, in human terms, let's say I cheat on my wife repeatedly. Please forgive me, but I'm going to keep cheating. No, it doesn't work like that. If I just say, God, please forgive me, but I'm going to keep living the way I'm living, that's denying the Lord who bought you, and that's cheap grace. You cannot preach forgiveness without requiring repentance, turning away from your sin and seeking to follow Jesus. He said cheap grace is baptism without church discipline and being baptized just off the cuff, and that's a way of identifying yourself as a Christian publicly. But if someone is going to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but yet not hold anyone accountable in church discipline, that is cheap grace. I can baptize you, but you can continue doing whatever you want. That's cheap grace. He says cheap grace is communion without confession. You can be part of the body, part of the brotherhood, and drink of the blood of Jesus and eat of the body of Jesus, but never confess your sins or admit that you're a sinner who needs salvation. That's cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is grace without the cross. The idea that, you know, God just loves you and he'll forgive you because he'll love you. He loves you. Well, no. You're under God's wrath. You're forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. And the way where the truth is blasphemed to deny the Lord who bought you is to say God just forgives you because he loves you. No, he forgives you because he died to pay the penalty for your sin. Yes, he did that because he loves you, but that's different. He says it's grace without Jesus Christ. Now we do have free grace, but that doesn't make it cheap grace. See, that's what's happening today. That's the effect. If we're going to deny the Lord who bought us, if we're going to deny that Jesus is my Lord, and if he's my Lord, that's a term of loyalty. I'm going to swear an allegiance to him to live according to the way of his kingdom, which he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But the... That's what Lord means, but when we deny that and just say, oh, God will love you, he has a plan for your purpose, let him into your heart, blah, 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 that's cheap grace. And that makes the way of truth blasphemed, where biblical Christianity, again, is now seen as extremist in the weird one because there's so much false teaching. That's the effect of it. Now, verse three says the method that they use. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. That's their method. So covetousness, is there greed? By greed or covetousness. And it doesn't have to be money, but a lot of times it is. It could be women, it could be power, it could be fame, it could be self-justification, whatever. By covetousness, they will exploit you. The King James Version of the Bible translates that as they'll make merchandise out of you. That's what the false teachers do. They will make merchandise out of you. They will make you into their product. They'll exploit you with deceptive words. And the word deceptive in Greek is the word where we get plastic from in English. See, plastic is fake. It's shaped and molded to give the resemblance of the real thing, but it's fake. It's synthetic. In these deceptive words, they're molded to sound good, to sound appealing to you, but it's fake. Now, that, that's the overview. Again, that's kind of the general sketch, and we'll fill it in as we go through. The overview, again, there's false teachers among you who bring in destructive heresies which deny the Lord who bought you. There'll be swift destruction for them. The effect of this is that the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
And their method is they will exploit you with deceptive words. You know, the next thing, he talks about what's going to happen to these false teachers, which, now we'll get to the point later on. Let me, let me just read it. So continuing on verse three, he makes a statement. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So he brings up right away away here that something is going to happen to these false teachers. They will be judged. Their destruction does not slumber, and their judgment has not been idle. That's his statement. Now he's going to prove it. And what Peter does here in these next few verses, up to verse 10, it's a technique that rabbis did to prove a point. It moves from a minor premise to a major premise. And the idea is this. It's all to prove the major premise, that if if these small things are true, the minor premises, then this major premise has to also be true. And that's the point that he's getting on these verses. So skip to verse 9. Look at that. Because that's the major premise. That's what Peter's trying to prove. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Okay, that's the major premise. But to prove that, let's back up to verse 4. He has four minor premises. Four things that if these smaller things are true, then this big thing has to be true. And so verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now there's a lot in that verse. Again, we're going to kind of go quickly through it. But here's the basic idea. God didn't spare the angels who sinned. The spiritual beings or entities who rebelled against God's plan to use humanity. See, God created humanity in his image, which means to rule in his place, to rule this world in his place. Humans were deceived by Satan. Now, God didn't cast away humanity like he, like he made it, may have hinted at. If you eat of this fruit, you will die. He meant spiritual death. So God didn't cast humanity to the, to the side. He had a plan to redeem humanity, which is where he says to the uh, serpent that his head will be crushed, but you'll bite the heel of the one who does it. Now there's angels who sinned that also rebelled against God as part of that judgment. And what it says here, those angels who sinned, God didn't spare them. It means he's not going to redeem the angels. He only redeems humanity. He's not going to spare those angels, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be, to be reserved for judgment. So those angels who sinned, God is not letting them get away with it. He's reserving them for judgment. That's minor premise number one. Second minor premise, verse five. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So it's the same premise. God didn't spare the world at the time of Noah. He wiped it out with a flood. And this is connected with the angels who sinned, who were trying to wipe out humanity. God didn't spare that world. He wiped them out. But he saved Noah, one of eight people, who was a preacher of righteousness. He saved Noah, who was righteous. So he didn't spare the angels. He reserved them for judgment. He didn't spare the world. But he did spare Noah, who was righteous. Verse 6, third minor premise. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So it's the same point. Sodom and Gomorrah 
We're living ungodly way in homosexuality and inhospitality and idolatry. And they were sinning in ungodly ways. God did not spare those cities. He wiped them out. Then the fourth minor premise, verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. So Lot was living in Sodom, yet he spared Lot because, as it says in verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Not that Lot was a good man. If you read in Genesis, Lot was not good. He was not sinless, but he was righteous because God said that he was righteous. That's what makes us righteous when God says we are righteous. One of the clues, by the way, it says in verse 8 that their lawless deeds were tormenting him. If people's lawless deeds torment you, not in a way of judgment, but in a way of, man, I know where they've been. I know where that leads, and I don't want to. It just, it torments you. That's a way of knowing. Now, here's what he's saying. All these things have the same idea. God didn't spare the angels, but reserved them for judgment. God didn't spare the world, but saved Noah, who was righteous. God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but spared Lot, who was righteous. Now, verse 9, if all those things, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. See, if God does all those things, how much more true is that verse? That God knows how to deliver the godly out of their trials, but reserve the ungodly for the day of judgment. Now, beyond the idea of the false teacher is what you're looking at here, you can take that as a great comfort in your life. When you see how maybe people who are hurting you are getting away with it, it looks like. But what he's saying is, God didn't spare the angels. God didn't spare the world. God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not going to spare someone who is ungodly. God knows how to to reserve the godly for the day of judgment. He also knows how to deliver the godly in their trials. He knows how to do that, and we can trust him. Now, verse 10 explains those examples and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. That was the world at Noah's time, Sodom and Gomorrah. And to reserve the, or, and despise authority. And those are the angels who sinned. Now here's the point. These false teachers will be judged. God knows how to separate. God knows how to deliver the godly and reserve the ungodly for the day of judgment. God cares about this. God cares about the honor of his name, and so should we if we're going to call ourselves Christians and take on his name and say that Jesus is my Lord. God cares about this. He wants us to know he is going to take care of it. He's going to take care of that in your life. If people are hurting you and it looks like they're getting away with it, he's going to take care of it with the false teachers. God knows how to do this. He is a just judge. See, this is a God who is loving. This is a God who is holy who is just, who is trustworthy and righteous and worthy of worship. See, this is a God I want to worship. I don't want to worship a God who's not going to reserve the ungodly for the day of judgment. I don't want to worship a God who doesn't hold anyone accountable. says, as long as you tried really hard, it's okay if you did bad things, it's okay. Or a God who says, you know, I just love you for who you are, just be be yourself, it's okay. I don't want to worship a God who says, all you got to do is connect with me and, and you're all good. I don't want to do that. I want to worship a God who cares about justice and our God does. He knows how to reserve them, how to keep them, how to spare them until that day of judgment. At the same time, I don't want to worship a God 
that I can be godly before him on my own behalf. I don't want to worship a God that I can earn my way to be delivered because that God's not holy enough. If he's going to accept me for who I am, that God's not holy enough. I'm going to worship a God who knows a way to deliver me from my sin by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sin so that he can declare me righteous. And those who reject that, those who don't want to, those who will stay in the kingdom of darkness, he's reserving them for the day of judgment. See, God cares about this, and he cares about the honor of his name. So when false teachers come in, denying the Lord who bought them, and blaspheme the way of truth, and lead many astray with their deceptive words, that is disgusting and perverse to God, and they will be judged. And maybe that doesn't sound like a loving God. That's the point. Jesus came to die for our sin. That is the way of truth. And those who blaspheme deny that truth and deny the Lord who bought them. If Jesus came to die for our sin and all we have to do is say that he is Lord and believe that he rose from death, but we're going to deny that, God is loving. Just because he holds people accountable doesn't make him unloving. makes him very loving and he gives us a way out. And if we're going to deny it, we deserve what's coming. So then... That's what's going to happen to them. Now, the rest of the chapter, he fills in the profile of these false teachers. There's a lot of stuff. Again, we're going to kind of move quickly through. I know it's a lot of things. There's a lot of emotion here. And he says, how you can identify the false teachers with their motives, with their actions, their words, and descriptions about them. And the way he describes them, it's almost like he can't stop writing. He's so furious about these people, thinking of different ways to describe them. And by the way, the book of Jude is very similar to this chapter. So you can read Jude as well. It's just one chapter long. And it it goes right along with this chapter. We don't know who inspired whom or what was first, but they they kind of align. Let's go on to the second part of verse 10, describing what these people are like. He says, they are presumptuous and self-willed. That describes some of their actions. They're presumptuous and self-willed. That means they're full of themselves. These false teachers are full of themselves, presumptuous and self-willed. And then he illustrates this with an example. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. And this is kind of a difficult verse. Here's what he means. I think it's this dignitaries. It's a strange translation, strange way to translate it. The Greek word is doxa, which means glory or glorious one. Some Bibles will translate it as they're not afraid to speak evil of the glorious ones. That's still kind of confusing, but when you read verse 11 and if you read the corresponding verse from the book of Jude, it makes it pretty clear what he's talking about. These dignitaries, these glorious ones are demons. They're the fallen angels. They're not afraid to speak evil of demons, in other words. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now the idea is these guys, these false teachers, are so full of themselves, they think they have spiritual authority to tell demons what to do. He says in Jude in the corresponding verse that even as Michael, the archangel, was delivering the body of Moses and he was stopped by Satan, Michael, the archangel, did not revile Satan, but ask God to do it for him. And he's saying these false teachers are so full of themselves, angels who are greater in power of night and might do not dare to bring a reviling accusation against them, but these guys will. They think they have authority over dark, demonic spirits, and they don't. Not even angels play that game. 
Now verse 12 gives a description of them. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed. Peter is calling these false teachers natural brute beasts. They're animals. That's what that means. They can't control themselves. Animals don't control themselves. Whatever an animal's impulse is, they act on it and they do it. And if a bull sees a cow that he likes, he takes care of business. Right? There's nothing that stops an animal from acting on his impulses. Peter calls these false teachers natural brute beasts. They're animals. They have no control over their flesh. And they're made to be caught and destroyed. Again, speaking of that judgment. They speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. We've already covered that. Verse 13, another description. Will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. There are spots and blemishes. And spot and blemish is a language for a scab or a sore. It says they carouse in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Describes an action that they do. They carouse in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Which means they lie in your very presence. They will feast with you. That's why he says among you. Now the feast was very important to early Christians. It was part of their their gathering, the fellowship, the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread. That's what it talks about in Acts, what the early church did. And while they are feasting, these false teachers will carouse with them in their own deceptions, openly, while they feast with you in your very presence. That's another thing that they do. Now, verse 14 describes them. Having eyes full of adultery. It speaks for itself. Their eyes are full of adultery. Again, they can't control themselves. That cannot cease from sin. It's another way to identify them. They can't stop sinning. Now this, yeah, he's talking about false teachers, but we can apply that to ourselves as well. Well, here's the pattern. They're presumptuous, self-willed. In other words, they're full of themselves. They're natural brute beasts. They can't control themselves, which means they can't stop sinning. That's how it works. If you can't stop sinning, we're full of ourselves. Where I think I'm something great, I think God can't tell me how to live my life, I'm full of myself. And then I can't control myself, like a natural brute beast. I know it's wrong, but you know, my body wants to do it, I'm going to do it. That's how sin works, and that's why these guys can't stop sinning. That's why we can't stop sinning when we're in that situation. That's where we check ourselves. Am I full of myself, and can I not control myself? That leads to being unable to stop sinning. That's what these false teachers do. They cannot cease from sin. And another thing they do is they entice unstable souls, it says. They go after people who are struggling, people who are doubting, people who don't know what's coming next in their life, and they take advantage of that. Rather than protecting them, they entice them. They take advantage of that. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. That's their motive again. What's their motive? It's greed, covetousness, money, power, fame, sex. Their heart is trained in that. And our accursed children. Now verse 15 and 16 describes more of their motive, the greed behind it. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. He's talking about their, their motive of greed. 
He says, they've forsaken the right way and gone astray. See, these guys, and it talks about it more late in the chapter, they've known the truth about Jesus. They know who he is, but they've forsaken that and gone astray because they love the wages of unrighteousness. They love what they're getting for for their sin, whether it's money or pleasure or women, whatever it is, they love those wages. So they've forsaken the way of Jesus, denying the Lord who bought them, and followed after that. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. You know what that's referring to? It's in the book of Numbers. And it helps us to understand what these false teachers are about. Balaam was a, he was a prophet. And he was even a good prophet. And God spoke to him. Now, he wasn't good in his lifestyle. He was good in that, like, he was a true prophet. And he was hired by an opposing king of Israel, Balak. Balak, Balak, whatever. And um, he asked him to curse Israel. You're a prophet, and I want you to curse the nation of Israel. So Balaam said, I'm not going to do it. He saw God on it. He did a whole sacrifice ritual. And God said, no, I am not going to curse Israel. And that's not how God works. So Balaam said he wasn't going to do it. But after enough money, enough provoking, Balaam agrees to go and curse Israel, even though he knew he wasn't supposed to. So on his way to curse Israel, he's going through a mountain pass, and there's rocks on each side, and it's very narrow. And the donkey he's riding on stops and won't let him through the pass to curse Israel because God wasn't going to allow it. So the donkey stops and doesn't let him through. So Balaam gets off and starts beating the donkey and hitting him and yelling at him to get out of the way. Get out of the way. So the donkey starts talking, it says in the Bible. He starts talking to Balaam and tells him why he's not going to let him through. And Balaam gives in to him. He starts arguing with him. He has an argue, arguing with this donkey. And that's what it says in verse 16. He was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, The word donkey is translated more funny in King James. You can look it up. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And here's the point. Balaam was so caught up in his greed for the sake of money. He was doing what he knew was wrong. He was going to curse Israel. He was so caught up in it. He started having an argument with a donkey, with a talking donkey. And he was arguing with him because he was so enticed by greed and the wages of unrighteousness. And these false teachers, that's what he's getting at. They're so wrapped up in their greed and the wages of unrighteousness, they do stupid things. Now, by the way, when Balaam couldn't curse Israel, the donkey didn't let him. He tried to corrupt them through sexual immorality, which ended up working. So just how humans work, I guess. Now, verse 17 continues to describe what these guys are like. They are wells without water. Now, these are a desert-dwelling people and a well without water. I mean, think about that. You're in the desert and water is scarce and you see a well. It will give you hope. You would walk to it probably very quickly, maybe run to it. You'd be wanting, looking to that well for what you need. You get there and there's no water. That's how these teachers are. They promise you great things and give you hope and it sounds all great, but there's no depth or sustenance. As it says elsewhere in the Bible, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. It sounds very godly, but they're denying the power of God working through his Holy Spirit. It says there are also clouds carried by a tempest. It's the same kind of picture. In the desert, there are clouds. It looks like it's going to storm. looks like there's going to be rain, but it's just clouds. No rain comes. It gives the illusion of hope, but no actual sustenance, which means no growth, which means no power of God. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? Verse 18 and 19, talk about the way they talk, the words they use. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. 
Well, they promised them liberty. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So this is the way they talk. They have great swelling words of emptiness. It's like Shakespeare says there, it's a tale uh, full of sound and fury, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. It has these great swelling words, but of emptiness. Sounds very powerful, but it's empty. There's no true power of God there. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They'll appeal to your flesh. You can keep living the lifestyle you want to live. God's going to approve of it. You don't have to change your life in any way because God loves you for who you are. Sounds great, but there's no power of God in there. It says they promise liberty. That's one of the things they'll promise you. You'll have freedom. Well, they themselves are slaves to their lusts and corruptions. See, whatever you obey, that's who is your master. If you can't control yourself, if you listen to your body every time your flesh wants to do something, you do not have freedom. You're under bondage to your own flesh. For example, if you know that it's wrong to look at pornography and you feel guilty every time you do it and you get very angry with yourself, but your body wants to do it, so you do it anyway. You're not in liberty. You're in bondage. If you know it's wrong to judge people and you feel terrible when you do it and speak bad about them, but you do it anyway because your ego wants a boost, You're not free because you did it. You're under bondage to your flesh. And so these teachers, although they'll promise great liberty and freedom, look at the fruit of their life. They can't stop sinning. They're full of themselves and they can't control themselves. So they're not free. They're under bondage to their flesh. Even though they'll promise great freedom and use great swelling words of emptiness. Verse 20. For if... After they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. See, they know the truth about Jesus, but the lust of their flesh has drawn them astray. Peter is saying, God is saying, it would have been better for them never to have known about Jesus in the first place. Because the more you know, the more is required of you. I'm going to say, if you're listening on the radio, denying the Lord who bought you, if you don't turn from your sin and repent and say Jesus is your Lord, you should have stopped listening. It would have been better for you to know, not know this, than to know it and deny it. You can turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Then it's good for you. Now, I know I was listening a long time too before I turned to Jesus and confessed him as Lord. But if you never do that, it's better if you would have never known in the first place, just like with these teachers. In the last verse, verse 22, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. I mean, that's his final words on these guys. They're a dog returning to lick up their own puke. I've seen it. It's gross. These guys, they had a lifestyle of sin, learned about Jesus, went back to their own vomit to lick it up. They're cows who were washed, but went back to rolling around in the mire. That's what happened to them. Now, Peter is angry, like I've been saying. You can sense the passion behind this for the honor of God's name. And again, Christians, we should be angry too. Because 
these false teachers, I mean, here's, to summarize all this, they're so full of themselves. They use Jesus' name to give a very appealing message using great swelling words of emptiness that lead people astray for the sake of money and greed and sex and power. Yet these teachers cannot stop sinning. They continue teaching and fellowshipping with God's people, carousing while they feast with you. Their condemnation is just. That is why God is reserving them for the day of judgment. Now, the effect of this, and I'm going to speak because I'm a, I'm a millennial, I'll admit it, and, and they're kind of on my heart because people make a big deal about millennials, you know, they're self-entitled snowflakes and, and all that. Now, we didn't invent that, we were taught that, so, you know, give us a break on that. But there are some true things about millennials. For example, they're leaving the church in record numbers. Young people are not going to church anymore. There's a lot of reasons for that. One I hear a lot, one that I've experienced, is this disillusionment with church. What a lot of people have grown up seeing, and it's not just millennials, but I don't know, for some reason it hits us more. They grew up going to church, seeing their pastors and their parents committing adultery, divorcing, abusing, and seeing Jesus make no difference in their life. And seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on at home, yet they go to church and act like they're great Christians, but they saw denying the, the, the Lord that bought them. Now, it's a complex problem. It's a a deep issue why young people are leaving church. But part of the problem is that you can go to church for decades and never be confronted with your sin because you're only taught great swelling words of emptiness that blaspheme the way of truth. Because this cheap grace is so predominant. Now, Christians, I'm going to challenge us Because we're better than that version of Christianity where we come to church and put on our nice clothes and go home and abuse our wives and have affairs and do all that other garbage. We're better than that. And I'm not saying that because I'm better. That's what God says about his sons and daughters. We're better than that and we don't need to accept that form of Christianity. See, the Bible says we are God's royal priesthood. We're his priests. We don't need to settle for that version of Christianity. The Bible says we are saints. We are holy ones. We don't need to settle for that. We're born again of the Holy Spirit. We are God's temple. We are his sacred space to advance his kingdom in this world. We don't need to settle for those empty words and just, yeah, God gives a check of approval to your life. Go ahead, doing whatever you want because God doesn't care. God has asked more of that, more of us than that, Because he sent his son to do all of that for us. We don't need to sell ourselves short with the shallow, superficial teaching in Christianity. So I'm going to close and try to, I don't know, just what I took away from this. Probably a lot of things. Again, it's a lot of stuff, I know. We can spend a lot of time looking into it. If you have questions, ask. But I think the emotion behind this chapter, for me, when I was praying about it, is, Jesus is the opposite of this. Jesus is the opposite of these teachers. Jesus is God in the flesh. Yet he never was power hungry. He said, those who want to be first must become last. He said, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus was God in the flesh Yet he never took advantage of women. He defended the woman caught in adultery. 
He spoke to the woman at the well. He was a friend of the prostitutes. Jesus is God in the flesh, yet he was never greedy for money. He spent most of his life working as a carpenter. And then in his public ministry was mostly homeless. So he could tell people that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus is God in the flesh, yet he never made merchandise out of anyone. In fact, he overthrew that religious system that was doing that when he went to the temple and flipped the tables. Jesus is God in the flesh, yet he never used people for his own gain. He died for people so we could count it gain. You see why Peter and God are so angry at these false teachers? What is being done and taught in the name of Jesus that is so contrary to everything Jesus stood for and everything Jesus did as God in the flesh? That teaching is disgusting. At the beginning tonight, I said that humanity is wicked enough to corrupt the most beautiful things on earth into evil. That's exactly what we've done with Jesus as humans. We killed him when he was here. And we preach evil in his name. Humanity is wicked enough to corrupt the most beautiful things on this earth into evil. Yet, Jesus is holy enough to transform the most evil things on this earth into beauty. Jesus does the opposite of us. Jesus transforms death into life. Our physical death, he transforms into life when we resurrect to see him. Our spiritual death, he transforms into spiritual life so that we're connected with him and empowered by him. Jesus is holy enough to turn our shame into victory. When he bore our shame on the cross, as he was ashamed, that became the victory that his shame was where the Bible says he triumphed over the evil spirits, declaring victory over them. Our shame is his victory. That's what he does. Jesus transforms our trials into joy. Maybe not while we're going through them, but afterwards when we see how he's pruned us and refined us and sanctified us, and how he was closest with us in our trials. Jesus is holy enough to transform religion a man-made system of do this, don't do that, into a relationship where we are God's sons and daughters and heirs to his kingdom. Jesus turns condemnation into salvation. And Jesus turns sinners into saints. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, this is a heavy word. When we think of how beautiful and glorious, and holy, and righteous, and good you are. Yet we see the evil that is being done in your name. God, we confess that we ourselves have at times used you for our personal gain, for our own justification. Father, we ask your forgiveness in any way we've used you that is contrary to who you are. And we pray that you would empower us to live how you ask us, to not deny the Lord who bought us. Father, we pray for this town and this state and this nation and this world where there's so much false teaching that the way of truth is blasphemed. God, we thank you that you know how to deliver the godly but reserve the ungodly for judgment and we trust you to do that. 
Father, help us to continue to learn and know who you are so that we know the truth of who you are and we don't listen to these false teachers. Give us wisdom to discern who they are. And God, I pray for my own self that I would never be a false teacher. Thank you, God, for my brothers and sisters. Help us to encourage one another, stir each other up. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.